along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to be speaking today to Joe Carney. Joe Carney leads learning strategy and change for Facebook's global operations. Prior to this, Joe was responsible for internal and client talent and change transformations for Accenture for over 15 years across various industries, including high-tech, luxury retail, and government sectors. Joe, you are very welcome. Thanks, Laurie. Delighted to be here. Joe, you have a huge amount of experience with change and change management, so I might perhaps start by throwing a statistic at you. It's claimed that 70% of all change initiatives fail. Is that true? And if so, why is that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Laurie, to start on, because there's actually very little data to say that it's in any way true. And I think if we want to look at kind of how this really dominant yet totally fictitious narrative of, of, of change has been, I suppose, constructed, we can probably look to three elements or reasons. And the first is the importance of, of change in the era that, that, that we live in. The second is probably this inherent bias we all have towards failure that, that's kind of wired into our brains. And the third is, is this misinformation from, from bias. And I'll just touch upon these quickly to see why this 70% fallacy has, has perpetuated for so long. And firstly, I suppose organisational change is kind of the zeitgeist of, of, of our you know, recent decades. The, the, the complex reality of our time means that we're placing an ever higher premium on the ability to, to continuously change, to, to, to stay relevant. And every manager now needs to be a change manager. So we've all started to really get on board um, with the importance of change. And then the second thing is, is I suppose, negativity bias. You know, when you, you're kind of in the middle of an organizational change initiative, um, our negative biases can create this, this kind of, I suppose, toxic self-fulfilling prophecy. And when we fall a day behind schedule, and if people start to believe that change is unlikely, they see this kind of setback as like this, I don't know, dead canary in the coal mine of, of, of change. And then um, the change initiative begins to kind of sputter in, in, in reality and kind of perception. And on this kind of, you know, interesting 70% statistic itself, it's kind of a, a bit of an insidious uh, myth, but it's so disturbingly um, widespread. And kind of looking back, as far back even as, as, as 2011, there was a researcher in, in Brighton called Mark Hughes, and he published on this fact that really there is no empirical evidence to support this statistic. And in fact, there actually isn't any credible evidence at all to support the notion that even half of organisational change fails. Probing it a little bit further, there was a book in 1993 called Reengineering the Corporation, and the author stated, our unscientific estimate is that as many as 50% to 70% of organisational transformation fails. And it seems kind of from that point on that this unscientific estimate that they call it has taken on this life of its own. And we've seen so many peer-reviewed articles and leading business literature that says 70% is a, is, is a hard and fast rule. And I mean, definitely change is, is, is complex, but we could probably do well with reminding ourselves and organizations that we've been kind of changing and adapting to new environments 
since the day we were born. Like adaptation is the rule of kind of human existence. Absolutely. And it's interesting, the, the, the references you make there to both the popular literature, but also to the peer-reviewed academic literature and how this statistic seems to have been perpetuated without any particular evidence. Do you think that perhaps points at something that, that might be wrong with, with current approaches to change management? If on the one hand, we have this admittedly spurious claim about 70%, or equally that people feel the need to grab hold of this 70% figure. Is there something wrong with current approaches we need to work on? Looking into it, I would say yes. I mean, the, the need for a new solution to this kind of change quagmire is clear. And it's not unreasonable to think that you can't really solve these kind of contemporary change conundrums with these outmoded change approaches and inaccurate data. And when you look to kind of, I suppose, more empirically valid literature or progressive organizations that are actually really successful with change, we see a kind of a common pattern that they actively fight against this myth that's being constructed that leadership is the primary driver of um, successful change. And what they show us probably is that opportunities to lead in more collaborative and participative ways to instigate change have really been missed in a large scale. Um, this idea that, you know, change can only happen in a very hierarchical, um, linear way is kind of the show that almost never, never ends. You know, problems that now instigate change are typically complex and interconnected and not easily managed by hierarchies or, or, or silos. And there's, you know, you know, there's so many models which claim to, to have the optimal approach to change. There's Cotter's eight-step model or Lewin's unfreeze, change and refreeze. And what we see with a lot of these is that they have this kind of linear framework that treat change as a step-by-step -step process that reply to all organisations regardless of context or the human capital within them. And some of the, 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 the empirical research to support these approaches goes from kind of weak to almost hilarious. You know, a recent analysis I read looked at 200 change case studies. And one finding that I thought was so interesting was the success of change without following any model. And I suppose, long story short, organisational dynamics are changing and, and change, change models need to, to reflect that. And I think change management, yet yeah, to your point, is due a really, really radical reinvention. So based on your experience then, what would do you feel is a better approach? If, if these ideas, these approaches you mentioned, Carter, Lewin, etc., are not quite working or not quite doing, with, not quite appropriate, what would you suggest is a, is a better approach? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few ways, and one in which I've seen some success with is being really data driven about your change and looking at the social capital as opposed to the human capital within within an organisation. And there's one approach, you know, organisational network analysis, and I'll call it ONA here to to save the syllables which is a really structured way of visualizing how communications and information and decisions, I guess, pass through a, a, an organization. It helps to show really salient networks, which are representations of actually how people communicate and get things done within an organization. And they give us change insights that are 
actually masked by what I'd say these hierarchical organization charts and uh, process maps. And without getting too, too geeky about it, I suppose organizational networks consist of nodes, which are people, and, and, and ties, which are these kind of formal and informal relationships between them. And if we can map these, they give us a really strong foundation for understanding how you know, communication and change in an organization is flowing and could flow if we wanted a change to happen. Um, and I, I don't want to put people off this kind of really, really exciting area of change research, Laurie, by going really heavy into graph theory. And, you know, and if you Google ONA, you can get some of the most dry technical descriptions of what it is. But really, it's just a kind of a, I suppose, a new lens to evaluate how people show up in an organization. And the power is its ability to, to really give an x-ray into the inner workings of an organization. And it's quite powerful in making visible these invisible patterns of information flow and collaboration and, and showing who carries high social net worth in an organization. I remember reading a statistic not that long ago, actually, that in order to change opinion within a group, you only really need to get to about 20% of the people holding a particular opinion and it pushes things over that Rubicon. Is it that sort of thing that understanding ONA and, and having a better grasp of those networks can help you deal with? Absolutely. I think you just, you just kind of hit upon it there. If we can tap into the people who are really your change makers, your influencers, the people, the 20% that carry um, real prowess in terms of influence within the organization, you can yield some pretty powerful outcomes pretty quickly. And by mapping this out so that it's less about anecdote, but more about what the hard data says, we can see, you know, by virtue of who you know or who you interact with, you're going to have an, you know, an advantage with respect to information dissemination due to your, your position. And if you think about those kind of classic organization charts, they really overemphasize kind of leadership. But if you can look more at kind of indicators of collaboration and knowledge, then you start to hit upon change drivers and if you take say a you know a hypothetical individual we'll call her joe she may be on the, the kind of bottom of your organization chart but if she's in the center of a of a network they can be a really key agent of change and they can be one of that 20 percent that, that you mentioned and and what i really like about this is that change can sometimes be this perniciously vague concept and if we can put some, some, some kind of hard evidence data in it, it lets us be really prescriptive about the, the, the change that we want to, to drive. And it can help break down that resistance to change, which we all know if you've ever worked in, in change is you know, one of the greatest barriers. And there's a guy who talks about this really eloquently called Michael Arena. He's the, the VP of talent and development in, in Amazon Web Services. And, an author and a leader in ONA. And he says that if you kind of try to sell change as initiative, the antibodies will consume it and they've been fighting off transformation since the beginning of time. So you follow the energy and you start. And that energy lies in that 20% that you, you mentioned there, Laurie. And if you understand you that 20% is in a really data-driven way, that's when you open up organizational boundaries and you can really um, unleash change at, you know, at that pace. 
So how might that then inform more, more, I guess, thoughtful approaches to change management? Is it about, say, a leader or about leaders, plural, within an organization taking a step back to really try and understand those networks before they seek to implement change? Or, or would it almost be the other way around, looking at those networks and then thinking about what that might mean for potential changes in the future of the organization? So I think there's a huge opportunity here for, for, for leaders, for all leaders who all need to be change agents now. And I think a good first step is to think about, you know, pausing on employing these kind of bloated, outdated organizational charts to, to, to approach change because they're masking how kind of work gets done. And I think by leaders having a focus on data analysis and letting that drive decisions as opposed to got feel or anecdote or relying on default positions of how change always gets done. It helps them find those natural leaders. So leaders not, you know, who aren't necessarily a leader in name, but are actually a high social leader and start to place premium and investment on them as social capital to, to drive change. And by leaders kind of finding these influences in informal networks, they can get this archetype of previously hidden social leader. And I think there's a great opportunity here for, for leaders to kind of rewire around data to find those people with an outsized influence. And a good starting point is to really get people together to think, how are we going to scientifically interpret our, our human ecosystem? to understand these informal networks and see how change spreads. And when people do that, you see these eureka moments, this kind of discovery of these unexpected networks, which are lying dormant, that if you just exploited, you have this huge change potential that's already there, that's quite cost effective, that you can use to exploit this kind of, you know, and balance this entrepreneurial and operational kind of co-systems. So does that suggest then that in order to actually implement ONA, as you were going through a change process, that you need to have a huge amount of data? And does it then rely on, on having all of those associated data analysis and mapping tools? Or is it something that can be done on a more, I guess, ad hoc basis or with more limited resources? You know, you can do it both ways. Um, I've seen companies do this, this both ways. And we'll talk maybe about kind of active and passive ONA, which probably gives some clarity because you can do this in quite a low tech um, way. And how organizations tend to approach ONA is so unique to their intricacies, depends on their structure, you know, the number of employees, whether they want to use an in-house analytics arm, whether they even need to, whether they want to get, you know, a vendor um, and how they, they kind of tap into then the insights it's given. But without getting too, too heavy into the process again, um, there's two types of ONA, passive and, and active. And for kind of listeners unfamiliar with, with, with them, active ONA is kind of surveys which enable organisations to, to understand how employees feel about their colleagues, their relationship and their influence in an organization. So you can quite quickly issue surveys to your, to your um, team or organization 
which asks them around who do they who do they think carries influence who do they go to when they have a question who do they think is well connected and you can get some quite powerful data from repeated names around that the other approach then is is passive ONA which is kind of the implementation of ONA by looking at an employee's digital footprint and that takes passive data sources from tools like you know corporate email slack MS Teams, you know, Yammer, um, and, and you know, you, you, there's questions there about opting in, obviously, and that's that's probably slightly more unbiased and objective um, data about how people are, are actually working, but you can kind of do this in a very low-tech way, so it's quite easy to get started. One, I suppose, minor caution, though, is, you know, looking at some of the literature on this um, and, and analyses of how, when workplaces have implemented, if you can, a hybrid approach using passive and active is probably the most optimal. Reliance on, on active ONA or surveys can be, be challenging. There was um, some, some, some information out there recently um, through some McKinsey research, that, which was actually interesting in itself, that when company leaders believe who they know the influences in their organisation are, they're almost always wrong. So it really does show the power of, of passive ONA and why a data-driven approach can be really interesting for people to see who these kind of hidden change makers are in an organization. And that makes a lot of sense because I can imagine in, in a lot of contexts, if you were to survey someone, they might perhaps put their, their manager as, as a, a, a key contact because they feel they should say that rather than necessarily because that's how it is in reality. They may not necessarily have that kind of uh, kind, kind of linkage that that they may have with, with their peers or with others in, in different parts of the organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of, it's, it's hidden. And by mapping it, you start to, to get these kind of huge insights about where it, where it's, I suppose, most salient. And that's kind of, it does lead to these kind of a, uh, for want of a better word, um, you know, eureka moments for organisations. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any particular examples of, of ONA in practice you can point to? Any organisations you can refer to that that have, have tried this, done this, and, and, and done so successfully? Um, yeah, um, I can think of a, 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 a few, actually. And the number is only getting bigger because the you know, the results of these, you know, interventions and approaches are, are, are so strong. And you can probably here look to, you know, niche vendors who specialize in it and consultancies who advise in it and in-house units in large multinationals that really started to, to get on board with it. And if I think of a, you know, an ONA, you know, vendor, um, there's one trust sphere um, hugely interesting and exciting who use these validated algorithms to identify these kind of hidden agents of change and once they're kind of identified then they can unleash this capital they have to to deliver sustained business change um and if we look to to, to consultancies even you know if i think back to to bcg even as far back as 2006 they were talking about the delayering benefits of speedier decision making and enhanced communications from from you know network optimization and now i see other consultancies like deloitte and accenture have these in-house arms that, that offer advisory and implementation in the space and then there's a kind of plethora now of these adaptive organizations that are really 
open and sharing about their shift from kind of human to social capital to drive change. You know, a few are Netflix, um, GN, Apple are doing it, Amazon, even Disney. And Netflix in particular, I know it's the oft-used example, but they've really become a market leader in doing this. And they attribute a lot of their success with their ability to forge connections that serve to kind of diffuse new ideas across the organization. And they encourage key influencers to kind of modify ideas by maturing connections, not just within Netflix, but also outside the organization. So they've kind of almost next leveled it. And their success is such that there's even a neologism, Netflixed, that's now in our kind of public vernacular. And it was the, the title of a best-selling book. And, you know, it's all about that when you don't use your networks to, to drive change, um, you're kind of risking obsolescence, which is, uh, is very interesting. Just as you're talking there, it, it makes me think of some of the, the work that's been done in, in a, an area. I do quite a bit of work sort of innovation and creativity and how many organizations are redesigning their public spaces to encourage interaction between different people from different departments and different groups. So instead of having multiple coffee stations around a building, they might just have one or two big ones, which force people to go and to move and to link and to mix. And, and so these networks are implicitly being developed and, and strengthened. But then obviously in terms of innovation, you're getting cross-pollination of ideas and thinking and challenging. But I could see how that might also link to the building of influence for change. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen some really interesting information come out on, on this lately um, from Sandy Pentland in, in MIT, who talks about this related to social physics and pro-social motiva motivations that influencers carry within, within networks. And what I love about that and some of what you're saying is this isn't massively complex stuff. You know, simply reworking your ergonomic environment can really be a powerful driver of innovation in an organization. And just a couple of simple changes can, you know, really um, unlock powerful outcomes for innovation and change in an organization. So what challenges would you suggest there are based on, I guess, your own experience and your own research with implementing ONA in practice? Yeah, I mean, you can get very excited and carried away by, by ONA. But yeah, you know, there are challenges with, with implementing ONA. And it can, you know, it can involve challenging these legacy beliefs that companies have about top-down change and shifting these conscious and unconscious biases that we all hold about what work. And, you know, inertia is probably one of the most powerful antidotes to, to innovation. And... At a macro level, there is an irony of the fact that we need a type of change management to support organizations transition to this new type of, you know, data-driven network-fueled um, change management. And, you know, there's, as I said, there's kind of biases at play here. If we think about one that's notable, the, the effect heuristic, you know, we have this subconscious process of distilling kind of information through our, our previous experiences, we all do it, you know, through the brain, you have bias. And if a company has changed their change model in the past without success, people might not want to hear about, you know, ONA. 
and um, you know aspiring implementers of, of, of ONA are going to have to really be ready to show how this can impact and improve the bottom line. You know, change is a victim of its of its reputation. Leaders sometimes are unwilling to to spend um, money on change when they you know they point to the seventy percent stat or they say it hasn't yielded the outcomes previously desired or it's a nice to have. And you know, sometimes the insights from 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 ONA are pretty unpalatable. Um, you've got to be ready to face some hard truths. You know, I saw one company who who got findings about change being inhibited through broken networks and that the company was suffering the effects of kind of unconscious bias around staff with employees prioritizing views and opinions of people of the same gender as themselves. So sometimes you've got to be ready for, for a few hard, hard truths with this. And, you know, I suppose I'm, I'm conscious also, so Laurie, that the, the ONA is a bit of a buzzword and the network sciences have kind of come into fashion and they've been advancing rapidly for the last 20 years. But but ONA is, is a journey to, to an outcome. It's, it's not a destination. It, it's not enough to, to collect the data and be data observant. The value is in the insight. And if you're looking to transform how you deliver change, you need to turn that data into contextual insights about your people. And that takes time. You need to upskill people in understanding data. And I've seen the most powerful of these ONA maps that are kind of almost fossilized if there's not this plan to translate it into actionable insights and then have the kind of the, the, the platforms to enable some of the insights that are coming out of it. And is that something that you feel is perhaps helped or, or hindered by this, this current virtually global shift to, to, to working from home in, in many organizations. Is that helping or hindering the development of ONA and the analysis of, of these networks? You know, it's a good question. And I think we probably need some more time to understand how this is going to play out, which we don't necessarily want more, more time of a, a global pandemic. But I do think because people are now in a, in a more virtual environment, companies are much more interested in seeing how these invisible networks play out because people are not co-located so much anymore so whereas change and in information could have disseminated you know around water coolers to use that kind of oft used word and um, despite the fact i don't think i've ever instigated change over a water cooler that they're kind of left at a position where they have to get more data about uh, uh, around it because get you know gut feel and intuition isn't giving them the the insights that they needed and i think the type of change that we're now facing is very unpredictable there's a you know there's a huge lack of of certainty and you find sometimes in those situations people tend to default to those people that they think they can trust within an organization so there is really a higher premium than ever on what people are saying what people are doing at the moment so i see companies more interested in a data data driven approach but then i see other companies put some of their change management on hold at the moment because they're kind of firefighting and change still has this reputation of being a little soft a little nice to have so the answer is yes and no so if people wanted to find out more about ONA, are there any particular resources, books, websites that you could point them towards? 
there's a number of, of ways some really great people speaking about this this now you know even just on linkedin um or i set up a google alert for some of this stuff and i get some of the interesting stuff come into my inbox around this and a few people that share very progressive and interesting information that's accessible are um you know michael arena rob cross david green and michael arena i mentioned him vp of talent at amazon he has a great LinkedIn presence, a lot of articles, and he wrote a really interesting book I'd recommend called Adaptive Space, which um, talks about this in a very pragmatic way. There's also Rob Rob Cross. He's a professor of global business at Babson College, I think, in, in Massachusetts. And he's at robcross.org, which is very easy to remember, and, um, you know, blogs on, on this and publishes articles. And um, the final one I probably recommend is, is David Green. He's a an executive director at a company called Insight 222. And they talk about the ethical use of, of people analytics. Um, he runs people analytic conferences and he's a board advisor to, to Trustfit. And again, great LinkedIn articles that he publishes regularly on, on ONA. And what I really like about these guys is just how accessible they make ONA. You know, when I think about it, it's so rare that science on a, a simple a concept as, as kind of critical connections, you know, as a kind of a solution to one of the greatest challenges that we're faced with how change is, is the new concept, uh, sorry, the new constant. And, you know, it really isn't that complex. And we could learn a lot from kind of, I suppose, you know, viral activism about how to drive change and um, through networks when the energy starts. And, you can draw parallels from even some of these kind of moral and social um, philosophers. There's a guy, uh, Eric Hoffer, and, you know, he says that when human beings are free to choose anything they want, you know, they typically copy their neighbours. So there's a lot of things and a lot of people and parallels we can learn from, and it actually, you know, probably isn't that complex. Joe, fascinating insights into ONA. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great to speak to you. Oh, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Larry. Thanks for having me. Our theme song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution, share alike license.